This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. everybody. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. It is February 14th, 2022. That would make it Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Hopefully you have somebody special that you can hang with today. Um, get them a little Valentine's Day card, maybe a little gift, and just enjoyed the day together. So like I said, welcome back to the podcast. We are in a series called Conscience Driven Therapy. So we are going to dive into that here in a minute. Uh, Just a quick reminder where we've been and where we're headed. So uh, Conscience Driven Therapy is a book, um, and it has two sections. The first section deals with the things that are out of our control, things we cannot control. So that's chapters one through three. Part two, things we can control, uh, is chapters four through ten. And we are just smack dab in the middle of that. So this week we are on chapter six called Locus of Control and E-Toto. So fun little uh, word there that we will explain more today. All right, let's dive into the minute of transparency. And I'm calling this one Learning to Drive. So when we turn 15 and we start that process of learning to drive, we find that there are two major elements to driving, right? There's physically learning how to operate a vehicle and learning the rules of the road, and then learning to share the road with other people and responding to the way that they act or the way that they behave. So the first, learning to operate the vehicle, is really the thing that you have control over, right? It's up to you um, to go through driver's ed, learn all about the vehicle that you have, the importance of seatbelts, what it means to have your hands at 10 and 2, um, how to drive automatic versus stick. You learn the rules of the road and you learn to drive comfortably using those rules. You even learn how to predict the future in some in some level. Uh, I still remember, I, I learned to drive in Illinois, and I can remember them teaching us an acronym called IPDE, I-P-D-E. It goes like this, identify, predict, decide, and execute. Very simple illustration. So you're driving down the road when you identify that there is a deer alongside the road. You predict that it could jump out into the road. You decide that you should slow down and move over to the far side of the road. So you execute that plan and you drive by the deer. Pretty straightforward, right? And the crazy thing um, is that we use this process over and over and over without even thinking. In fact, we probably do it hundreds and thousands of times, even just driving back and forth to the grocery store. But these are all important pieces of the driving process, and they're things that we have control over. But the second piece, learning to drive with other people, is where things start to go south. Why? because we no longer have control over everything that happens. All we can do is respond to the things coming at us. So things like people changing lanes without blinkers, 
being on a highway and having somebody start to merge into our lane, uh, people not stopping at a stop sign, people speeding, people creating close situations, people backing out of parking spaces and not seeing what we're doing at the same time, people who don't understand what the right of way is, people who aren't sure how to proceed through a roundabout, and the list goes on and on. All of these are things that we don't have control over. All we can do is identify, predict, decide, and execute <laughs> so that we don't become a statistic. Now, I absolutely love this illustration because it's so practical, right? If, we, if you're a driver, then you understand this illustration, right? And it really illustrates the human condition, the fact that there are things that we have control over and there are things we don't. I also love that it exposes these three truths about life. Life truth number one, there are things we can learn, practice, prepare for, and execute perfectly. So let's, let's find an example of that. Uh, on a deserted road, you can do a three-point turn flawlessly. Life truth number two, there are things outside of our control that our practice can help us quickly respond to. So using the same example, during that three-point turn, we realize that a car has just pulled onto the street. So we stop halfway through our turns and let them pass. Life truth number three, there are things no amount of practice will prepare us for. Using the same example, during our three-point turn, a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour comes down the road and crashes into the back of our car. Now, this is very important. If we don't understand these three life truths, then we're going to experience the human condition in a very bad way. Things will happen, and we won't be able to process them. We won't be able to make sense of them, and we'll start to struggle. But if we're able to see them for what they are and place them into one of these three categories we just talked about, we'll at least have a firm foundation to start on. Uh, we'll be able to see the event for what it is and then process it through that lens. But let's stop here before I get too far down the rabbit hole. So we'll spend a fair amount of time fleshing out things like that in the remaining chapters. Today, though, chapter six, understanding our locus of control and e-toto. So today we're going to walk through about five different things. The first is defining locus of control. Two, is reviewing the things we cannot control. Three is moving to the things we can control. Four is e-toto. And five is common struggles. So let's start with number one, defining our locus of control. So let me start by saying that in this series, we have talked a lot about things we can and cannot control. In fact, it's starting to get annoying. And some of you may be getting sick and tired of this repetition. But the reason we're hammering away at this um, is because it is a huge percentage of the problems we face in life. Things we deem as mental health issues often stem from faulty thinking. On some level, us not being able to tell the difference between the things we can and cannot control can help add to the problems in this area. So this week, we're adding a slight wrinkle to the mix. We're going to add a new vocabulary word, vocabulary word or term um, that we need to flesh out a little bit better. So our new term or phrase is locus of control. And according to verywellmind.com, locus of control refers to the extent to which people feel they have control 
over the events that influence their lives. When you are dealing with a challenge in your life, do you feel that you have control over the outcome? Or do you believe that you are simply at the hands of outside forces? Great definition. Basically, our locus of control isn't the actual control we have in the situation. It's the perceived control, the control that we think we have in the situation. Now, I know you might feel like I'm splitting hairs on this, but we do need to go down this road because it's an important distinction that we must see, and it has a huge impact on our lives. It's kind of like the frog in boiling water scenario. You know the one, right? If you throw a frog in a boiling pot of water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you throw that same frog in a cold pot of water and you turn on the heat, it will literally sit there until it cooks to death. Now, the frog in boiling water is a good example of a person with an internal locus of control. They know that it's up to them to decide what they do, so they jump out of the pot. The frog in cold water is a good example of a person with an external locus of control. They believe they have no options, so they just sit in the pot until it's too late. So the article goes on to make it clear that we aren't 100% or the other, right? In fact, we kind of live on this continuum that fluctuates back and forth between the two. But this is important because where we fall between the two extremes will determine our thinking and our behaving on some level. More from the article. If we have a strong internal locus of control, these are things we're more likely to have. So we're more likely to take responsibility for our actions. We're less influenced by other people. We tend to have a strong sense of self-efficacy. We tend to work hard to get things in life. We typically have confidence when we are challenged. We tend to be physically healthier. We tend to be happier. We tend to be more independent. And we tend to be more successful. Now, if we have a strong external locus of control, we tend to blame other people for everything. We tend to believe that good things happen out of luck. Uh, we don't believe that we can change our situation in life. We feel powerless and hopeless when challenged. And we can fall into what's called learned helplessness. So you can see how important this really is. Uh, the article goes on to explain that locus of control is typically followed with conversations about self-determination, and personal agency, because our perceived level of control will have a direct impact on how we think and how we act, the way that we view and charge into the future. Now, if you have time and want to do an interactive online quiz, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a simple locus of control assessment from mindtools.com. And I know it's, it's in no way a valid clinical assessment, but it might be fun in helping you see which direction you tend toward. So do that if you feel interested enough to do it. Number two, things we cannot control. So we're not going to spend a lot of time in section two and three because we are reviewing uh, things that we've already gone over. We've addressed these things in chapters one through three. But since our entire topic today centers around control, it might be a good idea just to back up and remind ourselves what was on that list. So in chapter one, we spent an entire episode looking at the umbrella, if you will, the highest level, the overarching things that we have no control over. So we talked about the controversy, right? The battle that exists between God and Satan. This battle that's taking place over this little planet and its inhabitants. 
We have absolutely no say in this. It simply exists. Number two, we talked about the sin virus, when we decided to listen to Satan and his lies over the instructions of our creator. This little thing called the sin virus ended our perfect little world, and as we discussed, it's like the COVID virus only on steroids, with 100% infection rate and 100% mortality rate. In other words, everyone has it, and everyone will die from it. And not just living beings like humans, animals, fish, birds, all of that kind of stuff. The environment itself, the natural world, was infected. And it's on a similar downward spiral. Nothing gets a free pass from the sin virus. Number three, because of these two realities, we all experience the human condition. So the human condition is what we call life on Earth. This is just life on our little planet. Our life journey, including medical and mental health issues we experience along the way, the good and the bad, the randomness and the chaos, the love and the hate, the peace and the war, sickness and health, all of these things trending toward the negative because of these three constants. The fact that we have human nature, the fact that there's human suffering, and the fact that there's human disturbance. And finally, we talked about our own DNA, the fact that the sin virus, along with medical and mental health issues are passed down to us when we're born and there's nothing we can do about it. We simply sit at the top of a very steep hill waiting for the DNA mudslide to hit us. And when it does, we're left with a fallout dealing with the issues in our life for the rest of our lives. Next in chapter two, we went a bit deeper. So we went from the giant umbrella to a little more specific in the episode where we called it Uh, We were sent in a specific direction. That's right. And we talked about the following buckets from our past. People, places, and things. So we talked about the people, immediate family, siblings, extended family, uh, important influencers, things like uh, people like teachers, coaches, etc., etc. And then even random interactions with people that we didn't know, but things that impacted us greatly. Next, we talk about places. So where we grew up, the school we attended, the city we lived in, the cultural vibe that we were part of. And then there were the things, the events, the incidents, the phases, uh, things we were exposed to, cultural anomalies, uh, religious or political climates that we grew up in, the socioeconomic level we experienced, and the level of trauma we may have seen or experienced. So again, important that we understand all of these things, the people, places, and things occurred in the past. And because of this, we have no control over them. They happened and they had an impact on us in some way, shape, or form. But the only thing that we can do now is determine how we respond to them, how we choose to think about them in the future. And then finally, in chapter three, we took one step further and we discussed some very important things called landmines and minefields uh, that we experienced along the way. Now, both of these things are wrapped up in people, places, and things, uh, but these are incidents or groups of incidents that stand out because of their impact on us. So first we looked at landmines. So these are either poor decisions that we made in the past, so things that we did to hurt other people, things that were dangerous or illegal, things that we did that harmed ourselves or our family. Next, things that were done to us, so any incident of abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, rape, um, being fired unexpectedly, 
all things that may have been done to us by another person. And then there are things that just happened. So these are just random events that happened to us. Things like severe car accidents, uh, experiencing a natural disaster or a serious medical or, or uh, mental health issue out of the blue. So those are all landmines. Next, we have minefields. So as we talked about, these are similar to landmines, but minefields um, are a group of landmines, right? And these minefields are still things that are out of our control. So for example, a caregiver neglecting us for years when growing up. And then there are minefields that we may have helped create. So for example, addictions that we got started or we got involved in, or periods of uncontrolled anger, things like that. And again, the reason why these things are out of our control is that they occurred in the past. So it's important for us to understand the impact that these things had on us in the past and recognize if they are still affecting us in the present. And once we know that, to understand that the only thing that we can control is our thinking and our behaving moving forward, our response to those things. Okay, number three are the things we can control. So in chapter four, we made the transition into the things that we do have control over. So we talked about the first thing we have control over and how important these steps are. The first was voting in the eternal election. The second was accepting the antidote to the sin virus. And the third was understanding our value. Now the first, voting in the eternal election, like we talked about, the controversy exists whether we like it or not. It's something that we cannot control. However, when we come to understand that the battle is over us, for our allegiance, then we begin to see the thing we do have control over, which is the side we choose to be on. It's our vote in the eternal election between God and Satan. Next is accepting the antidote to the sin virus. Again, we don't get, con get to control the existence of the sin virus, but we do get to choose whether or not we accept the antidote. So we get to choose if we want the free gift that God is offering us or not. Now, this is tied directly to our vote in the eternal election because we show how we voted when we accept this free gift or reject it. In essence, accepting the antidote to the sin virus is our vote for God in the eternal election. Rejecting God's free gift is really choosing Satan over God, thereby voting for him. And finally, we are able to understand our value. So the fact that we have control over how we choose to look at ourselves. Now, this isn't always easy, but it is our choice on some level, right? Our pasts may scream things at us that make us very hard to believe, but we have the ability to look through those things and see our true value. Not because of who we are or what we do or how talented we are, but simply because we're children of God, children of the creator. He created us and he loves us no matter what. Like I said, this is one of the hardest things to do, to believe in ourselves, to believe that we matter, and to believe that we have value. But when we start to see ourselves in this way, everything changes. And then last week in chapter five, we called it hold on to the good, release the bad. Uh, we really talked about our worldview, the idea that we all have assets and strengths, and we all have landmines and minefields. And we work through these on paper, doing a ruthless inventory of the things that fall into each of these categories. 
Then we finished up by talking about reframing our worldview. Another thing we do have control over, a choice that we can make as we as we look into the future and decide how we want to live and how we want to view our future. We can either focus on the landmines and minefields from the past, or we can choose to focus on the present and the future based on our assets and strengths. Number four, e-toto. So that brings us to today, another step in the right direction, understanding the things we can control. When we look back over the things listed above, we should be able to see a pattern emerging, right? Each of the things that we do have control over starts in our mind. It's our brains that are doing the work. It's our thinking that is involved. And it all comes down to that little thing we call freedom of choice. This is our tool, our weapon in the battle between God and Satan. You could almost look at it as our superpower, right? It's the one thing that Satan can't control or Satan can't overcome. He can do everything in his power to harm us physically. He can get people under his influence to do bad things in the world. And he can create distractions and experiences in the world to keep us off track. And he can even work as hard as he can to destroy the physical world we live in. But the mind is off limits, right? It's something that he cannot control. Now, he can influence it, to be sure. We call this temptation, and we're going to spend a big chunk of time on that next week, Um, and a little bit this week as well. But at the end of the day, we are in control of our destiny because our minds are under our control. So let's spend a few minutes on this control muscle, if you will. But before we do, let's go back over the two very important things we talked about. First, deciding what we can and cannot control. This is huge, and this will be a big part of conscience driven therapy moving forward. Once we have a solid list of the things we uh, can and can't control, we need to make sure that we respond to or think rationally about the things we cannot control. And then we need to double down on the things that we can. Next, we just introduced the concept of locus of control. Similar, but different. Once we have the list from above, the list of things we can control, we still have two ways that we can view that list. With an internal locus of control, which suggests that we have the power to make decisions in these areas, or with an external locus of control, which suggests that we don't have the power to influence these things. You see how important that is? to determine that we have control over certain things, and then to develop a strong internal locus of control or the belief that we have the power to impact those things in our future. Okay, that was all foundational, but very important. So let's talk about real life, everyday decisions that we get to make. Decisions about how we respond to the things that are outside of our control and what it means to make good decisions on the things that we can. Now, typically these decisions come out of the blue, right? It's called stimuli. If you ever took a course in psychology, like just an intro course to psychology, you probably heard the word stimulus and response, right? So the stimulus is the thing that creates uh, the need for a reaction, and then the response is the reaction. And in life, we have lots of different stimuli. So we have environmental, relational, political, religious, and the list goes on and on and on. 
all things that would provide a stimulus in our life and force us to make a decision or something to respond to. Now, these events or situations come up and we get to decide how to respond to them. So just let's just look at two examples, all right? One that we cannot control and one that we can. So starting with a situation that we cannot control, let's say that you're walking through your day and somebody innocently brings up something that you did 10 years ago. It was something that you wish never happened. It was an embarrassing situation and you wish it could just disappear altogether. For the rest of the day, you're sad, depressed, and you feel worthless. Now, because this happened in your past, you have no control over it. All you can control is your response. You can either allow the feelings to become overwhelming and lead to more negative thoughts and behaviors, or you can process it rationally and begin to climb out of the funk that you find yourself in. Next, uh, next up, let's talk about a situation that we can control. So let's say you work in an office with a lot of beautiful people. You're married, so the fact that there are beautiful people all around you can only take you so far. But one day you notice a coworker seems to have taken an interest in you. They have started to talk to you more often, and they even asked if you would join them after work for drinks. Now, this is a situation you have 100% control over. At this point, nothing has happened. It's up to you to choose how you think and behave moving forward. You could split hairs and say the attention you've been shown is out of your control, and that would be true. However, it isn't the attention that's the problem. It's the event that could occur in the future that's the problem, and that all depends on you. So like we've said, uh, the way that we respond to stimuli from our environment begins uh, as a function of our mind, it's, which makes our thinking very important. And yet, this is where the problems begin, because we don't always think correctly. We don't always think clearly. And most importantly, we don't always think rationally. There are many reasons for this. According to Mason Comey at BetterHelp.com and the staff writers at PsychCentral.com, emotional distress is one of the biggest culprits. When we allow volatile emotions too much room in our lives, it can be very difficult to think rationally. This is why we hear phrases like, you can't trust your emotions, sleep on it, go away and think about it, take a minute or two before you respond, count to 10. The truth behind these phrases is that our emotions can get the best of us. When we're highly emotional, we don't think as clearly as we should. So allowing those emotions to control our behavior is dangerous at best. What we need to do is allow these emotions to calm themselves a bit and then allow our thinking to do the work. And the plan is for our thinking to bring a certain level of clarity and objectivity. Now, aside from being highly emotional, there are also these things called cognitive distortions that can get the best of us. These are a really big focus of cognitive behavioral therapists. So these are forms of thinking that are not based in reality. They're not factual. Here's a list. Filtering, polarization, overgeneralization, discounting the positive, jumping to conclusions, catastrophizing, personalization, control fallacies, fallacy of fairness, blaming, shoulds and musts, emotional reasoning, fallacy of change, global labeling, always having to be right. Now, we don't have time to go into each one of these things, but you can see that there are many, many, many bad habits that we can fall into when it comes to our thinking. 
Each of these cognitive distortions can be described, and we could give examples of each, and develop a plan of attack for how to combat them. But for now, let's just leave it as a list. So if you want to dig deeper into this topic, all you have to do is do a quick Google search for cognitive distortions and go to town. Okay, so how do we work toward more rational thinking in normal everyday situations? Glad you asked. We're going to first look at the issue from the following viewpoints, the psychological viewpoint, the spiritual, and then a combined solution to the problem. So let's start with the psychological. As I've said, I'm a huge fan of therapeutic treatment modalities that focus on our thinking. So two of the ones that we've talked a lot about in this series, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT, both attack the problem in a similar way. So I want to walk through um, two little models that they use in those forms of therapy. So the first, um, and really both approaches are kind of built off of this first model. It's called the ABC model. A stands for the activating event. B is your beliefs about the event. And then C are the consequences. Now, in cognitive behavioral therapy, this is all you need. They simply split it out into two versions of the ABCs based on the beliefs you have. So I'll put a little chart in the show notes so that you can see, um, but I'll just read through them real quick. So list number one is negative event, A, rational belief, B, healthy negative emotion, C. The other list, negative event, A, irrational belief, B, equals unhealthy negative emotion, C. So that's the way that they view uh, you know, working through your beliefs or cognitive distortions, if you will, um, in a situation. You look at the event and then you look at what you believe. Is it rational or is it irrational? And then that should determine the type of consequence that comes out of it. It's either going to be a healthy negative emotion or an unhealthy negative emotion. Now, let's look at REBT. So in the ABC model, the solution is inferred, right? Like you just have to understand that B is, there's a solution that needs to be figured out in the B stage. But in the ABCDE model from rational emotive therapy, it literally spells out the solution as part of the equation. So let's walk through and look at that one. So A, again, activating event. B, the beliefs about the event. C, the consequences that we're experiencing. D is called disputation. So this is where all the fun takes place. It's disputing the beliefs that you have, disputing the irrational beliefs that you have. And then E are new effective beliefs. And these are rational beliefs that are meant to replace the old beliefs. Now, I find myself leaning toward the REBT model simply because I love the fact that the solution is part of the equation. They put the disputation piece, the D piece, in there so it's all spelled out for us step by step. Now, we could spend hours on this because this is really the backbone of the cognitive therapy revolution. But since we're limited on time, let's just talk through a simple illustration using each model. So let's start with the ABC model. A, A is the activating event. You are fired from a job. B, you believe that losing the job is the end of the world, the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to you. C, the consequence of that belief 
is you feel dread, fear, an unhealthy level of anger and anxiety that is paralyzing. Now, in this scenario, you've identified everything you need to identify. So the next logical step is to work through your beliefs and decide whether or not they are rational. Next up, the ABCDE model. So let's let's use the same scenario. A, you're fired from your job. B, you believe a uh, the losing the job is the end of the world, the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. C, you feel dread, fear, and an unhealthy level of anger and anxiety that's paralyzing. D, you talk through your beliefs and realize that there is no proof that losing a job is the end of the world. You learn that thousands and thousands of people lose jobs every day, and then they find new ones. E, you determine a new set of beliefs, which include losing a job is unexpected, and it is not a fun experience, but it's not the end of the world. People change jobs every day. You will find something else to do. And if you worked through D and E sincerely, that should impact C, right? The old consequences were fear, anger, and anxiety. The new consequences should be things like nervousness, sadness, and concern. Now, I don't want to gloss over this important fact. Notice that both sets of consequences were negative, right? In walking through these steps, it's not like we're going to turn losing a job into a fun experience that produces happiness. But the new rational beliefs will decrease the severity of the consequences and keep them from paralyzing us. So you will still be in a negative situation, but you will be in a better place, one where you can act on the concern you feel. And this action will begin the process of finding the next right thing for you. Now, before we leave this section, there's a couple things that we need to discuss. So things that the cognitive therapies have taught us. Not only did they give us the cognitive triangle or the ABC model that we talked about above, but they gave us two other interesting concepts as well. The first is the cognitive triad. So they've put together these three things that if you fall into the trap of thinking negatively in these areas, it could be very difficult to move forward. So a negative view of yourself, a negative view of the world, and a negative view of your future. They call that the cognitive triangle or triad. And again, if you fall into this trap, it's very difficult to move forward and make progress. This is a worldview with an highly external locus of control, right? Not only do we view ourselves negatively, but all we can see are negative things happening now and in the future. The next thing that the cognitive therapies taught us is what's called a negative self schema. So a negative self schema is a set of beliefs and expectations that we have that are highly negative or pessimistic. So really similar to the cognitive triad, and you can see the problem already, right? If we lean too far in this direction, our thinking is almost forced to be irrational we start functioning in a state of learned helplessness where all we can see is the worst possible outcome. But this worldview is almost always based on irrational thinking and fictitious information. Now, before we leave this section, it's important to explain one thing. If you choose a psychological solution and you go see a cognitive behavioral therapist, you aren't gonna spend 100% of your time in every session going over the ABCs right? That's a big part of it, 
but it's a fairly quick part actually. Um, and the therapist will work with you to, to learn that process, but fairly quickly you should pick up on that and start learning to do that for yourself. Once this is clicking along, there are many other tools that therapists might use in the therapy uh, process, including changing negative behavior patterns, uh, incorporating more positive behaviors into your routine, things like that. Next up, we have the spiritual solution. Now, this shouldn't take long to explain. For the Christian, there are many things that we can do to access or leverage the power that exists in the spiritual realm. Um, we usually refer to these things as spiritual disciplines, and everyone seems to have their own list. Just do a quick Google search on spiritual disciplines list, and you'll see what I mean. So I just randomly picked a Zondervan article that popped out at me, and it suggests that there are 20 spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm not going to read all 20, but here are some of the more traditional ones. So you have prayer, Bible study, meditation, worship, service, and stewardship or giving. And then there are a few other ones that kind of jumped out at me that I thought might be helpful. Things like silence, solitude, and simplicity. So growing up in a Christian home and going to church taught me that these were the solutions to life's problems. Just do more of the spiritual stuff and you'll be fine. You'll be happy, in fact. But was I really? No, not really. In fact, I struggled with happiness, no matter how religious I tried to be. And then last but not least, we have the combined solution. And this is, this is really where I find myself after 50 years on planet Earth, right? This is what conscience-driven therapy suggests is the most effective way to achieve health and wellness over time. We'll just call it the combined approach. One that draws on the spiritual connection we have to the creator, that's the spiritual side, and one that suggests we have cognitive strengths that we were given, that's the psychological. In this approach, um, here are the most important elements of our spiritual connection. So the first thing we have is a foundational knowledge from the Bible, which helps us understand absolute truth, the big three questions. Uh, understanding what the scratch is all about. We talked about that last week, right? Understanding that there are much bigger things at work in the universe. The Bible is also an integral part of the disputation process, which we'll talk more about later. And then you have prayer, which is our lifeline to our creator, right? The ability to connect directly with him. And then you have this little thing called the conscience, right? Conscience-driven therapy. This is an internal radar, or sonar that helps us make good decisions and do the right thing in difficult situations. We'll spend a lot more time on this one in the future as well. And then you have the rest of the spiritual disciplines, right? And this, this will be different depending on who you are and what your personality is. For example, some people find solitude an amazing spiritual discipline, and they probably wish that they could engage with it all the time. For others, solitude is a form of punishment. Being away from other people would not work for them. So there are primary ways that we connect with our spiritual side, and then there are, then there are secondary ways. That said, let's move on to the next piece of the puzzle, the psychological side of the equation. Now, I'm not saying that the spiritual side is all God and the psychological is all us, right? That's the way the world wants to view it and why I had so many issues early on trying to fit myself into this little box, right? Um, not allowing the two to work together. So a traditional therapist might say, 
oh, that's fine that you're a religious person and you believe in God, but let's put that in a little box for now. Let's put that over here on the back burner. We need to focus on you and your thinking right now because you have everything inside of you to be a healthier person. Then once you're healthy, if you still want to dabble with the religious stuff, that's fine. On the other side, a Christian counselor might say things like, yeah, let's not focus on that pop psychology stuff right now. We really need to work on your spiritual disciplines first and get things straightened out there. Then if you want to read a few self-help books in the future, eh, that's fine. Now, I'll admit, those are very one-sided stereotypical statements, and not every clinician on each side would say those things to their clients. But from my training and from my work experience that I was a part of, this sentiment did exist on some level, and it seemed pretty ingrained in the counseling culture, especially the phrase, you have everything you need within you to be a healthier person. This is almost the definition of humanism, right? It's the most traditional psychological theory that there is, and it's based in humanism. So conscience-driven therapy comes along and says, no, there's really no separation between your spirituality and the psychological struggles you experience. There is complete overlap and integration. Without the spiritual, there would be no human, no person, and no psychological element to begin with. And without the psychological element that God created within us, creating us in his image and his likeness with freedom of choice, there would be no reason for the spiritual element. So the two are interwoven, right? And any attempt to separate them just leads to less successful attempts at being healthy and whole. Now, if this is true, you would expect to find references in the Bible to our thinking, right? After all, it's the operating manual for the human being, how to operate our bodies, how to operate our minds, uh, best practices for the use of our brain. Now, I don't want to get bogged down here, but let's at least walk through a few just so that you can see what I'm talking about. So Proverbs 23, 7, as someone thinks within himself, so he is. Concept, freedom of choice, self-determination. Deuteronomy 30, 19, today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness to the choices you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Concept, freedom of choice, self-determination. Psalms 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Concept, spiritual connection, prayer, and the conscience. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Concept, disputing your rational thinking, choosing better thoughts, the conscience. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Concept, the power of your thoughts. You become what you think about, so think about good and rational things. Uh, Proverbs 4.26, give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Concept, the power of your thoughts, choosing rational thinking and remaining strong in your choices. 1 Corinthians 2.11, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way. 
No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Concept, the conscience, the spiritual connection we all have with our Creator. And finally, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Concept, disputing irrational thinking, using God's Word to inform our thinking, and ultimately thinking about our thinking. (laughs) So there you have it. All right. Biblical proof that there is a strong connection between the spiritual and the psychological. Okay, let's wrap up this section by touching on the treatment model that conscience-driven therapy uses. So we already talked through the ABC model and the ABCDE model, but what does conscience-driven therapy use? Drumroll, please. We call it the CDT Cognitive Reframing Workflow. I know, long name, ridiculous, and we probably need to figure that out at some point. It doesn't really roll off the tongue like the ABCs of CBT. But we'll get there at some point. So this cognitive reframing workflow is going to feel very similar, right? Um, But it will have some additions based on the fact that conscience-driven therapy has a spiritual component. So instead of the ABCs or the ABCDEs, we're going to have E-T-O-T-O. Now, I know that doesn't roll off the tongue either. But that's where we're going to go for now. And who knows, in the future, we may tweak it to the point where it has a super cool name and much easier to remember. But for now, E-T-O-T-O. So let's walk through it at a very high level, but just know that there will be a full conscience-driven therapy, cognitive reframing workflow worksheet uh, available on our Patreon page this week. So this tool will be really helpful, and it's going to be the cornerstone of conscience-driven therapy. It's the tool that you'll use anytime you're feeling down, stressed, or in some way not handling the human condition well. And as a clinician, this is a tool that you can use with clients, a cognitive exercise to ensure that the client is thinking correctly, rationally, about their past, about situations in the present, or even a client's perception of their future. So let's define each step in the process. Now, you'll notice um, if you download the the worksheet, you'll notice that there are two T's and two O's. Very observant. Uh, Each is the same, but slightly different. And I think you'll get the hang of it as we walk through it. So here we go. E-T-O-T-O. Let's start with E. E is nothing more than A from the ABCs. It's the event or activating event, as they call it. The thing that starts the whole problem in the first place. Things like losing a job, failing at something, getting into an accident, a friend saying that we look like we gained a few pounds, etc., etc. Next up is the first T. So we're going to refer to this T as little i, big T. This is our thinking about the event. And unfortunately, these are often irrational thoughts. So hence the little i, big T. And when we say that they're irrational, we mean that they are fueled by emotions or that there are cognitive distortions at play. After that T, we have O, the first O. We're going to refer to this one as little i, O. The O stands for outcome, and the little i stands for initial. The O takes place of the C in the ABC model. This is the outcome or the consequence that you're experiencing. So these outcomes are typically seen in one of two ways. Negative emotions that are impacting your everyday functioning, or 
negative behavioral behaviors that are not socially acceptable or that are creating problems for your life in some way. Next, we have the second T, or what we're going to refer to as the little r, big T. And the little r stands for rational. So this is our thinking about the event after we challenge its validity, right? This is the step that is inferred in the ABC process. And it's the deep step from the ABCDE process, the process of disputation or disputing our irrational thinking. This is really the hardest step in the process because we're actually thinking about our thinking and then choosing to think differently. The good thing is that if we do a good job in this step, we leave the step with a new solid set of beliefs or thoughts about the event. Thoughts and beliefs that are factual, rational, and will help us make progress. And finally, we have the last O, and we're going to refer to this one as little p, big O. The O still stands for outcome, and the little p stands for preferred. So this is the preferred outcome, what we're hoping to achieve. Uh, and it's important to remember that the preferred outcome is still going to be a negative thing most of the time. Like we said above, if we lose a job unexpectedly, the goal is not to go from fear to happiness. The goal is to go from fear to a healthy level of concern. The fear is unhealthy and can cause inaction, but concern is a much more healthy negative emotion that is able to push us toward finding a solution. Okay, so that was the 10 cent tour, very high level and without much detail, I understand. Um, if you would like to download the full worksheet, uh, head on over to the Patreon page and you can pick that up. Now, like I said, the IT and the RT step in the process is the big one. This is called disputation, and it's where the magic happens. But it's also the most difficult part. And at first, it might require some help to get through it. Why? Because our brain is like a muscle. If we don't work it out every day or in this way, it's going to be weak. But once we've worked through the process a few times, we become stronger in that area. Now, the worksheet itself will help you walk through the disputation process or the process of challenging our irrational thoughts. We won't walk through the entire process here, but let's summarize it so you get the idea. So, conscience-driven therapy suggests a three-step approach to the disputation process. Step one, identify your irrational thinking. Step two, challenge or dispute the irrational thoughts by using a spiritual challenge and a cognitive challenge. And then step three, document the new rational thinking and put it into place. So if we successfully navigate this process, we should arrive at our PO or our preferred outcome. As we've said a few times now, the preferred outcome is not happiness, joy, or elation. It's simply a more healthy version of the negative emotions and behaviors that we have. Walking through this worksheet should help us change our thinking and create next steps for our situation. When we start to get healthy, it's amazing how much more energy we can put toward finding solutions. And that's the real goal, moving from unhealth to health, inaction to action, getting to the place where we're no longer stuck, but we're able to find solutions and implement them. So before we move into our final section, uh, one more word on the use of uh, this worksheet. So the, the CDT, Cognitive Reframing Workflow, 
or what we call the eToto process. At the beginning, a person might print off a new worksheet every time they feel overwhelmed and work through it on paper. But after doing that for a few months, maybe the paper version becomes less necessary. Maybe the person keeps a quick note on their phone uh, with the steps and uses that every once in a while as they walk through the process. And eventually the process becomes so second nature that you start doing it in your head. That's the goal. Number five, common struggles. So to wrap things up today, let's just look at a few more of the common decisions that each of us has to face in life. Uh, They aren't easy. And for most of us, using the eToto worksheet might be very helpful. So here are just a few of them. First, holding grudges versus offering forgiveness. This is huge because none of us makes it through life without being hurt, right? By a family member, a relative, a friend, a close uh a close friend, a coworker, a boss, a company, a church, and the list goes on and on. And if this is true for all of us, then the decision whether we hold a grudge or offer forgiveness is something that we will all face from time to time. Holding a grudge holds us captive. Often, the person who wronged us doesn't even remember the incident. They don't lose sleep over it. So the grudge we hold is like a cancer that slowly eats us alive. And it rarely ever impacts the person who wronged us in the first place. Forgiveness equals freedom. So when we forgive the person who wronged us, we aren't giving them a free pass. Forgiveness is letting us go, right? It's letting go of the grudge that we are holding so that we're no longer held captive by that situation. This is where the freedom part comes from. Releasing the grudge the anger, and the intrusive thoughts that were interfering with our life and our future. The next big question we have is blame versus acceptance. So similar to the first one, bad things happen to everyone, right? And we need to recognize that in every bad situation, we can do one of two things. We can immediately try to find someone to blame or something to blame, or we can accept that it happened and look for solutions. Blame rarely fixes anything, and it definitely doesn't change anything. The bad thing happened, and there's no changing that fact. So casting blame simply adds gasoline to an already roaring fire. If we're blaming another person, we will for sure put distance between us and that person. And the other thing blame does is it feeds our pride. So if everyone else is the problem, then we must be pretty special. Acceptance allows us to immediately begin the healing process. It allows us to be solution-focused and set goals for repairing the damage. It opens the door for relationships to be restored. And finally, it keeps us humble. The next decision, shame versus growth. So this has everything to do with locus of control, making the decision to stop focusing on the past and focus on our weaknesses and instead focusing on the future and the assets and strengths that we have at our disposal. Shame keeps us trapped in the past and keeps us from really living. It's a negative mindset that can keep us from seeing positive things in our life. Growth is accepting the past, learning from it, and then applying it to our future, using the assets and strengths that we have, and even looking around for more in the future all in an effort to grow as a lifelong learner. The final decision we can make is attachment versus release. 
Now, this one gets a little existential, a little woo-woo, but hear me out. This one hits at the heart of the spiritual side of all of us. The world has a lot to offer aside from spirituality. There are things, right? Homes, cars, TVs, phones, computers, nice clothes, vacations, all of those things. And there are achievements, right? Power, fame, a good job, status, being an influencer on social media. And there are good pursuits that have nothing to do with the spiritual realm. Things like athletes, Olympians, authors, painters, scientists, all doing amazing things in the world. But all of these things can become attachments, right? We can become attached to them as the end-all, be-all in our lives. When in the grand scheme of things, they mean very little. How do we know that? Well, if the world ended tomorrow, what would your attachment be worth? Seven gold medals from the Olympics hanging around your neck. Would these help you escape the world ending? Would they help you live forever? Of course not. But if the world ended and God returned to take those who accepted the antidote to the sin virus home to be with him forever, see, now that would be important, right? That would be something to be attached to. I think it's Buddhism that really champions this concept of removing attachments to worldly things and releasing them in order to maintain a connection to the spiritual side of our life. And I think that there's something that we can learn from that to release the fascination or the hold that we have on worldly pursuits and put first things first, ensuring that we're in a good place spiritually, understanding that the controversy is a filter that we can use to determine if something should be attached to or released. Okay, we really need to stop. This episode has grown exponentially since I first did the research and wrote it later that uh, last week. But for now, let's land the plane. So this week, ask yourself the following questions. Are you able to distinguish between the things that you can and cannot control? Number two, on the things that you can control, what is your locus of control? Do you believe you have the ability or the agency in your life to influence those things? Or do you see yourself as a pawn, just taking what the world throws at you? Next, download the eToto worksheet and give it a try. Pick a very difficult situation or event and work through that process on paper. How did you do? Were you able to identify your faulty thinking? Were you able to dispute the faulty thinking from the spiritual or from the cognitive standpoint? And what were the new rational thoughts and beliefs that you came up with? And finally, how are you doing on some of the common decision areas that we face in life? Holding grudges versus offering forgiveness. Blaming versus accepting. Feeling shame versus having a growth mindset. And finally, attaching to things versus releasing them. Is there something that you could do this week to take your next step in the right direction in one of these areas? And that's it, my friends. Thank you so much for sticking it out this week. Um, again, this is a slightly longer episode, but not episodes are uh, not all of the episodes are going to be this long. This content is just foundational to the overall treatment model. So it's really important that we make sure that we hit the high points in each of these areas. Uh, and actually, this was a pretty pivotal chapter, um, you know, with the Itoto worksheet um, is really being kind of a core element in conscience-driven therapy and how we make progress in life. So hopefully you will find it as invaluable as I have. Um, 
Next week, we are jumping into chapter seven, which is called Understanding the Battle. So with that, everyone, have a great week. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.